the world of Islam, culture, religion, and politics. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Amin Tice. We continue today tackling the subject of jihad. We're coming close to our contemporary setting, but we cannot understand our contemporary developments without talking, at least briefly, about the period of colonialism on one hand, and without keeping in mind both the legacy of the traditional doctrine of jihad, as developed by pre-modern Muslim jurists, and the legacy of the jihad movements of the 17th and 18th centuries AD. That's why I strongly suggest that before listening to this episode, it is a useful step to listen to the previous two episodes on the subject of jihad. Let's first briefly discuss the colonial period. This subject is going to get a longer treatment in a future episode, but it cannot be emphasized enough for the purpose of our discussion here. Starting in the 17th century AD, but especially in the 19th century, European powers came to militarily and politically dominate large parts of the so-called Muslim world, particularly the British and the French, but also the Dutch and the Italians. The dominated people stood up on different levels to the occupying forces. Armed jihad became of central importance in many parts of the colonized world. Jihad became then the ultimate defensive form of warfare. It became the name given to resistance to invading entities that did not share the cultural worldview of the indigenous populations and who at the same time were very interested in the economic exploitation of the colonized domains, even as they raised the slogans of civilizing the barbarians. Surely, for a variety of reasons, the European powers came to be technologically much more advanced than the colonized people. This, however, did not stop them from implementing policies that were often humiliating to the local populations. Jihad was not only a call for resisting invading armies, but also a wild cry to safeguard an identity that was seen as threatened by a powerful enemy. This is a very important point because these feelings of humiliation and hopelessness would engender deep wounds that are with us until today. Therefore, the conception of jihad would become colored with new experiences. Importantly, the long colonial period shaped the colonized world in deep ways at the political, social, economic, and cultural levels. The result is that by the time the locals gained their independence, they had inherited 
societies that were neither modernized nor traditional, but rather a strange mix of modern but corrupt institutional frameworks and dismembered traditional institutions that were rendered ineffective, including the religious establishment. The newly independent areas, and even the areas that were not directly colonized, but that were strongly impacted by European encroachment, now moved into a new order, an order in which nation-states became the organizing political structure. This, however, did not mean that these were democracies. Far from it. The new elites in these societies sought legitimacy not in the sovereignty of the people, but in various mixes of Western ideologies, often couched in religious language as the ulama, the religious scholars, were slowly becoming state employees. These are all extremely complex dynamics that I cannot detail here. What I can briefly say is that nation-states sprang all around the Muslim world, and with that also came an awareness that the old political framework had vanished, including the highly symbolic caliphate. Now, it must be stressed that the Abbasid Caliphate had disappeared shortly after the devastating Mongol invasions of the 13th century AD. But in the memory of many Sunni Muslims, the Ottoman sultans represented, in some way, the legacy of the unifying caliphate. Remember, caliphate comes from the term caliph, which is short of the Arabic Khalifat Rasulullah, the vicegerent of the Prophet as leader of the community, although the Umayyads had used the term Khalifat Allah, the vicegerent of Allah, In all cases, the concepts of caliph and caliphate regained a highly symbolic value within many Muslim contexts. With the new era of nation-states, there is an absence that is felt, if we want to think about this in psychological terms. Some groups, like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, would come to life with the idea of ultimately bringing to the picture an Islamic state that rules according to God's law. Here again, I will go back in more detail to the views of such groups that we now call Islamist in a future episode. But we have to note that these groups would face much persecution from various governments, ultimately leading many of them towards further radicalization. We also have to add that these Islamists would come in contact with Wahhabi interpretations of Islam in the Arab Gulf. The 1970s are a turning point because not only does this contact intensify, but the global oil crisis would create a stream of revenue from which would benefit the Islamist groups. Groups that at first had local concerns seeking to overthrow oppressive political regimes that they saw as un-Islamic 
or even anti-Islamic. But by the late 1970s, a number of events would come to shape the world of quote-unquote Islam in deep ways. Let me highlight two of them here. One is the Iranian revolution that overthrew the regime of the Shah and slowly installed a Shiite Islamist regime that would eliminate all other political factions that were previously opposed to the Shah, to the Iranian monarchy, and to its policies. The second one is the Afghan situation, in which the Soviet forces had occupied the country of Afghanistan and were ultimately defeated by a heterogeneous army of Islamist fighters that came from all around the so-called Muslim world and who were incidentally supported by Western powers who at the time were engaged in the Cold War and therefore did everything possible to undermine the communist camp. These same Islamist militants are the ancestors of Al-Qaeda and the current jihadists of ISIS. In brief, it is jihad gone borderless in the age of globalization. But which jihad? We have to note that modern Muslims came to struggle to come to terms with this traditional notion of jihad that they inherited within novel contexts. In the previous episodes, I explained how the traditional doctrine of jihad dealt with the seeming tensions and contradictions in the scriptural texts by using the concept of nesr or abrogation that empowered the texts that were viewed as the latest chronologically. You might also remember that the verses in question promoted offensive warfare and that this was in sync with the context of pre-modern empires in which Muslim jurists operated. With the rise of modern states and with the rise of an intelligentsia that was trained in modern settings, we find ourselves facing a vastly different situation. Nation-states in the modern context require, at least theoretically, a respect of national borders as to render expansionist offensive jihad almost irrelevant to political leaders. Yet, circumstances of conflict continued to make jihad a powerful, motivating, symbolic force because the one who engages in jihad sees himself as engaged in a cosmic battle against evil on behalf of God. These new circumstances created, in terms of the relation of Muslims to jihad, at least four kinds of attitudes. These are not fixed categories, but should be seen as part of a spectrum. I will outline here these attitudes, but with the caveat that I might be oversimplifying a complex situation. On one side stand those 
who we might call Muslim secularists, who perceive the whole concept of jihad as outdated and thus must simply be disregarded in our modern context. Then you have what we might call Muslim progressives, who seek to rethink the traditional doctrine of jihad. Instead of the concept of nesh, or abrogation, they champion a thematic reading of scripture on the issue of jihad. So in their attempt to reconcile seemingly contradictory texts in scripture, they push forward the idea that the main theme of scripture, particularly the Qur'an, is peace and pluralism. In other words, the verses that promote peace and pluralism represent the universal message of Islam, while the verses that speak of war and conflict are historically limited. They are tied to the historical context in which the message of God had to be embedded. Another perspective, and the one that arguably remains the dominant one among Muslims today for a variety of reasons, is the one proposed by the traditionalist religious establishment that follows in the steps of the pre-modern Sunni religious establishment and that keeps the traditional doctrine of jihad at the theoretical level but accepts the realities of the global modern context and therefore maintains that the only jihad that can operate within the modern context is that of defensive jihad to defend Muslim lands against aggressors. And it is up to the Muslim ruler to call for such form of jihad. The fourth group that we might qualify as jihadists take all of this to the next level. For those who adhere to this position, Muslims are ruled by un-Islamic regimes and Muslims are under attack by what these jihadists perceive as crusading forces all around the world. Therefore, a defensive jihad is a necessity. But once this process is underway, an offensive jihad against un-Islamic forces comes to play as well. In the case of this attitude, it becomes often difficult to theorize the notion of jihad. Far away are the moral struggles of pre-modern Muslim jurists to locate the will of God. What comes to play is a utilitarian will to overtake the perceived evil forces with little concerns for the moral obligations that pre-modern Muslim jurists struggled with even when they reached conclusions that are unacceptable to modern sensibilities. Before I finish, I want to highlight the confusing state in which many Muslim youth find themselves today. It is extremely saddening that Muslim youth in many parts of the so-called Muslim world have little access to these nuances and that they fall prey 
to the indoctrination of various groups, especially when they find themselves prisoners of severe socioeconomic conditions created by both local circumstances and global forces that are stronger than any attempt to find some form of moderation in thought and practice. May we all find peace within ourselves and with others. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you.